Well, let me add my Mother's Day blessing to this morning. First off, I am so thankful for my wife, Leah, for how she loves and serves our family. I'm also thankful for my own mother, who's probably watching online this morning, for the steady uh, source of love and encouragement that she's brought throughout my life. And I'm thankful to belong to a church here that is just full of godly mothers. And when I think about that, I remember when I first became a believer, how, how I had that profound revelation that the church is really a family, that in the church we have spiritual fathers and mothers, spiritual brothers and sisters, and even children in the Lord. And so the church has, for me, really become my spiritual family And the church doesn't replace your natural family. Uh, We've all got them, as interesting as they may come. Uh, But it's good, you know, it's good to honor your mom. It's actually one of the first, it is the first commandment in the Bible with a promise attached to it. It says that if you honor your mother and father, you will live long days on the earth. And so if you want to live a long time, show show some love and honor to your mom today. That's, That's the plan. Um, but for me, you know, the church has really been a place and in, in a, really a people that has supplemented for me and even at times has surpassed for me the understanding that I have of family. I, I just really love that um, even beyond my natural family, I have this extended family here. So to all the mothers, both in my natural family and here in my spiritual family, I just want to say happy Mother's Day. And uh, I pray that you would feel honored and blessed today uh, on this morning. So, church, we're going to go into Philippians chapter 2. No special message for mothers, sorry. Uh, We're just going to keep on going through the Word of God together. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in the middle of the chapter at verse 12, and then we're going to make our way to the end of Philippians 2. Let me begin uh, by reading a the first few verses from this section, starting with verses 12 through 13, and the words will be also up on the screen. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's where we'll begin today, but first let's just pray. Let's thank God for our moms. If you're near your mom or or your wife, why don't you extend a hand over them and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. And God, we thank you for your word that brings us into the family of God. We thank you that you are our heavenly father and you've shown us, Lord, what family is really all about. And God, we thank you that our, our families are really a visible representation of you, Lord. We, we learn so much about your own heart and character from, uh, from our mothers, Lord. And so I just pray, God, that you would bless the moms here today, uh, mothers of every kind, because uh, we know, Lord, that there's uh, natural mothers, there's spiritual mothers, there, there's so many ways of which a person can be a mom. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd bless them today, and for all of us, Lord, that today you would speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. 
Well, Paul certainly loved his spiritual family there in the church at Philippi. The, the saints in this church really held a special place in the apostle's heart. We see here in verse 12 that he calls them my beloved, which is a reminder to us that Paul is talking to believers. He's, he's speaking to people who have a shared bond in the love of God. And I think it's important that we note that at the start, and it's because of this. What we're going to be talking about today is, is us being obedient to God because God has saved us. Let me say that again. We are to be obedient to God because God has saved us. So when Paul says, my beloved, he's talking to Christians. You see, this call to humility and unity that we saw last week, that's for the church. And Paul knew that humility and unity and, and obedience, as we're going to see today, those things can only really be lived out by those who have received the grace of God and therefore those who have received the salvation of God. You must become a beloved child of God if you want to live out what's in the book of Philippians. You see, none of this will make any sense to you today unless you have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if, if you don't have that yet, that can happen for you today because God is a gracious God who gives the gift of eternal life. So let me just say this before we really begin, is, is to ask people to obey the commands of the New Testament but to ask them to obey apart from knowing the grace of God and having the spirit of God within them, that's, that's just futile. It doesn't work. In our own natural and sinful state, we cannot obey God's righteous law. We can't. True obedience to God can only come after a person is saved. After having received the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, then we can obey. So until we've been united to Jesus in this way, then and only then can you live rightly for God. Sure, you could do some good things, but to God, he says in his word, your deeds are like filthy rags to me. That is, unless you know him and are in relationship with him through Christ. So let me put it this way is that obeying God does not save you. Fundamentally to the gospel, I hope you understand that. Obeying God does not save you. But once you are saved, you will obey God. So when Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Paul knew that the Philippians were a group of faithful and obedient believers. Uh, this is one of the books in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul doesn't call out sin in a church. In fact, the word sin is not even mentioned in the book of Philippians. And no wonder it's the favorite book of the Bible for many Christians, right? Because we, we don't like to be confronted with our sin. But, but do you know why Philippians is such a joyful book? You know, that's the overarching theme of Philippians is joy. I believe the reason why Philippians is a joyful book is because the Philippians were obedient believers. There's so much joy to be had as Christians when we obey the Lord. 
And I'll tell you from personal experience that nothing will steal away your joy so quickly as to live in a compromised state of sin as a child of God. See, when, I, when I've tried to hide my sin, joy was hidden from me. So if, I ever, if ever in my life I have known an unrepentant sin, I'm miserable inside. And any child of God can attest to that, that, that disobedience to your heavenly father is a kill shot to your joy. And so there's only, way for, only one way for us to go as Christians, isn't there? With the cross before you and the world behind you, to go toward the Lord and toward him in your obedience. And so Paul here in this part is commending the Philippians for their obedient faith. And what he's recognizing here that I hope you recognize is that there's something that can often motivate obedience in the Christian life. And sometimes the reason for why we're obedient is because other Christians are watching. Look at verse 12. Going on, he says, Obey not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. You see, Paul was a pastor. And as a pastor, he understood what can happen in the church. That when the cat is away, the mice will play. (laughs) Without there being accountability from the Apostle Paul in the lives of the Philippians, the Philippians might get lax in their obedience to God. When, When Paul was around... When he was there visiting the church, there was instruction, there was accountability, there was love, there was grace. But but you have to understand that if the Apostle Paul was there in Philippi, I don't think the Philippians would have been cursing or gossiping in front of the Apostle Paul. Do Do you think they would have been doing that? No. And so what Paul is saying here is, is if you wouldn't do it when I'm with you, then don't do it when I'm gone. And Paul knows that he will be gone soon. He knows that he's dying soon. And he wants to be sure that his beloved children in the Lord will keep on living for Jesus well after he's gone. So let me say this to us here today. Live for Jesus even when no one is watching. Live for God even after your teachers are gone. Because it's easy when we're in church to obey, isn't it? It's simple to obey when, it, when we're in our home groups. It, it's, we can obey just fine in a, in a discipleship meeting. But will we obey when no other believers are present to keep you accountable? And look, I still sin. <gasps> Surprise. I still sin. But you know what? I wouldn't dare sin in front of you right now. I, I, I just wouldn't. But, but when I sin, I usually do that when I, I'm not held accountable, when, when I'm isolated, when I'm alone and I think no one's around and no one really, no one cares what I do. And you still sin, right? Right. Right. But I'm sure there are certain things that you wouldn't do if I were perhaps standing in a room with you. And look, this is normal and right for us. As 
as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, when we have fellowship with one another, we have fellowship in the blood of Christ who cleanses us of all sins. We hold each other accountable. We keep one another in check. And so the presence of another spirit-filled believer is going to provide accountability for you to walk in the spirit. But Paul's making a point here which is that a mature Christian should know that even if there are no other believers present in your life to keep you accountable, there is always someone who is present. God. And besides, the Philippians were not being obedient to Paul anyways. Even though the apostles' presence may have helped the church be obedient, may have helped to keep their sin in check. The Philippians were called to obey God. And, and God was the one by which they said, oh, I must obey him. And, and so he says to them, and he says to us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is an incredible command of scripture. This means that every single person who has made a confession of faith, that, that they have a responsibility to live out that faith in God. So let me ask you, has God saved you? Well, that's, that's between you and God. It's your own salvation. Has, has God saved me? I believe he has, but that is between me and God. It is my own salvation. And Paul makes it very clear here, here that, that salvation is a very personal reality. You have to have your own relationship with God. And the only way that you can have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. You have to believe in who he is and what he has done for you. You must believe that Jesus died on a cross for you. You must believe that he rose from the dead for you. And by your own confession and by your own belief in Jesus, God will save you. And then, therefore, if God has saved you, you have your own salvation. Now, ever since I came to Christ, when I was 17 years old, I've been living my life in such a way that I can know that I'm saved, to have this assurance of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I know him, and he knows me. We have a relationship. And I never want to live in such a way that I would provide a doubt in my own mind or a doubt in anyone else's mind as to my eternal destiny. I want to know that I know that I know that I'm saved. And as a pastor, Paul had his own salvation and he wanted to make sure that every single person in that church in Philippi had their own salvation. And that's my heart. Every single week that I stand in this pulpit, I've got my own salvation. But the reason why I stand here and preach the gospel is because I want to know that every single person in every single one of these chairs has their own salvation. Now, this might hit home for you because 
in any kind of room like this, there might be the possibility that you are in the midst of the church. You are in the midst of of Jesus-loving, spirit-filled believers, and yet you realize it, that you are not. You know, just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian. You have to have your own salvation. And if I can be so direct, it cannot be your spouse's faith that saves you. It can't be your mom's faith that saves you. I'm sure your mom's really blessed that you came to church with her today. But guess what? When you get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to hear you say, well, my mom and dad were Christians. I grew up in a Christian family. He's going to ask you, did you have your own salvation? Can't be your friend's faith. Can't be your mentor's faith. Can't be your pastor's faith. It has to be your own faith so that by grace you can have your own salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. And then this is what we're to do with it. We're to walk or work out, rather, our own salvation with fear and trembling. So when you become saved, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from the wrath of God. However, when you get saved, you have to realize that though you've been delivered from the wrath of God toward sin... We have not been delivered from the discipline of God towards sin. See, sin in a non-believer is going to be judged upon them. But sin in a believer will not be judged upon them. It will be judged in them. It will be disciplined in them. See, a a non-believer should fear God because he has the ability to cast both body and soul into hell. Whereas a believer, a child of God, should have a fear of God, but it's this right fear because we know that he loves us, and if he loves us, he disciplines us if we become disobedient to him. So our fear is not that God is going to cut us off from salvation. Our fear is that we might displease our Father. God's beloved children, if, if you know God in this way, do you remember what it was like when you were not saved. I do it. In, in a sense, it was kind of great because, you know, you, you could live however you wanted to live. You, you could pretty much sin without a care in the world. And, and there was no one to answer to except for yourself. And this is many reason, much of the reason for why people don't turn to God. They want to be their own God. But then once Jesus saves you, once you relinquish the right of authority in your life and you you surrender to Jesus, he takes a hold of your life, he takes out a heart of stone, and he gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh that has God's law written upon that new heart. And so once you come to know Jesus, you start to learn the way that God wants you to live. And wasn't it really clunky at the start? It might, might still be pretty clunky as you're walking with Jesus in in your salvation. But over time, as we walk with lots of grace and mercy in our lives, we have this increased learning of being obedient to God. It's called sanctification. And so what Paul is not saying here is that you need to work for your salvation. That's not what verse 12 says. That would be absolutely contrary to the gospel that Paul preached. Yet what Paul recognizes here is that once God has done a work in you, we have a responsibility to work salvation out of us. 
Do you know what I mean? I mean, in reading these verses, I, if you know, you know. Like, do you know what I mean? That if you have your own salvation, if salvation is in you, there is just this fear and trembling within you as you work out your salvation. A deep sense of reverence and honor to God where you're like, I need to live for God. I must live for the Lord. And it's this, it's this inner experience of a saved person. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because every single day, I have a sense within my spirit, I want to please God. I want to please God. I want to live for God as I should. And when I'm not living for God as I should, I tremble inside. Not a tremble in fear that I think I'm going to lose my salvation. That's not possible. We know that from the word of God, don't we? We, we saw in Philippians 1.6 that what God starts, he finishes. So, so, so when I'm walking in sin, if I'm hiding my sin, I, I'm not afraid that I'm going to lose my salvation. But, but I am trembling inside like I'm not where I should be with my God. And so I know that from my own sanctification, my own walk of salvation with God. I'm working that out with my God. Now, before we think that our salvation is all about us working it out, and we become a little bit too self-reliant, that, that it, we become so self-dependent upon our, ourselves to live out this faith, look at verse 13, because it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So just as much, much as it's true that we work out our own salvation, it is equally true that God is the one who works in you. He works in you by giving you the ability both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know this, right? God wants you to live a life that's pleasing to him. That's what he desires for each and every Christian, every child of God. He wants you to live a life that pleases him. And he has given us the grace to do it. God is working into us the things that he is calling to be worked out of us. This is saying that God will give you both the desire to obey and he will give you the power to obey. It's often been said that what God commands, he also enables. God doesn't just stand off and say, now obey me. God is intimately and relationally involved in helping you obey. It's like my one-and-a-half-year-old son pushing a shopping cart, you know, through the store, and he's holding it down below, and he thinks he's steering the whole thing through the aisle. Like, he's like, I'm pushing the shopping cart through Costco, da-da-da-da-da. But there's like a wall of groceries in front of him and he can't see anything, right? And, and he thinks he's pushing the grocery cart, but in reality, I'm holding on to the front and just directing it all the way through. That's what your relationship with God is like. You think you're the one driving your life. Oh, no, God's hand is upon it, steering it where he wants it to go. And so here's how this looks. Let's get this straight. Verse 12 seems to say that I need to work out my salvation to God. 
But verse 13 seems to say that God works his salvation into me. So, so do I do the work or does God do the work? Yes. And this is one of the best scriptures that demonstrates two equally true and complementary realities in the Christian life. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Our responsibility, you could say, is to give a response to God's ability. Our responsibility is to give a response to God's ability. God's sovereignty does not contradict human responsibility. It works in it. And human responsibility doesn't contradict God's sovereignty. It works out of it. God is working in you to make you both willing and able to work for him. This verse gives us the confidence that God motivates and enables us toward obedience, that he gives us the power and the strength to live for him. So yes, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but not until God has worked his salvation into us, then we can work it out. Let me make this connection then to obedience. Paul is seeking to address the, the source of motivation for our obedience. Why do we obey God? Are you obeying God because you want to please people? Or are you obeying God because you want to please God? Too many Christians are only obeying God because of the social pressures from the outside. Rather than obeying God because of his holy presence on the inside. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you're a Christian. If you are a disciple of Jesus, the same spirit that Jesus Christ relied upon when he lived and walked this earth and and perfectly obeyed God, that same spirit that Jesus lived by now lives in you. You can obey God because he is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you want to live a life that pleases God, then tell God, Give me your power to live for you. Holy Spirit, lead me. I want to walk by faith. I want to walk by the Spirit of God. And God will give you that ability. Then in verse 14 through 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So right off the bat, this is what I want to say. Do not grumble or complain that obedience to God is hard. In our fight against sin, have we resisted to the point of shedding our blood? Anyone? No. But Jesus did. And he never complained about dying a death that we deserve. He didn't deserve to die, and yet he never complained about it. So we've been given the mind of Christ because the Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers. And so when Jesus beckons us to come to him, we're we're called to die with Christ so that we could then live out a life with him in faith. So brothers and sisters, what are we complaining about if we've been made children of God? And one of the first places that Paul is addressing our obedience is with the tongue. You remember this tongue, this little piece that we talked about in James? 
that steers the whole ship, that sets the forest ablaze. It's so small in comparison to the rest of our body, and yet it boasts of great things. And, and the words that come from our mouths, the Bible says that they're going to be from the overflow of our hearts. Therefore, your speech is giving revelation to the attitude of your heart. Are you grumbling? Remember that word grumbling is a onomatopoeia. It's, it's the word comes from what it sounds like. It's grumble, you know, murmur, griping all about it, right? And, and I'm convicted. <laughs> you know, I just went to the happiest place on earth last week. <laughs> Disneyland. Oh, man. <laughs> Look. I didn't even make it into the parking lot. You know when you go to Disneyland and you're always looking for the shortest line? Well, I got into the parking lot, and, and I'm like, that one. I'm going to choose that one because that one's the short. And I pulled in, and I kid you not, the person in front of me was, was, had lost their passport and was like looking for it through I don't know. It took them literally like 10 minutes to find whatever it is they were looking for. And there was someone behind me, and I couldn't get out. And I'm just watching cars go into <laughs> Disneyland, just right past me, just, just zipping through the lanes. And I'm just like, <sighs> you know? And that's what grumbling is. It's that subtle undertone of, <sighs> you know? My wife's like, chill out. Are you one to always dispute? Are you one to grumble? Do you jump at every opportunity to turn something into a debate or an argument or something to complain about? Is there fighting always going on in your life? Paul seems to draw from the book of Exodus here where coming out of Egypt, the bondage of slavery and into the wilderness, Israel just got saved from 400 years of bitter slavery, and they said to Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to eat the leeks and the garlic and the melons, and, and why did you bring us here? We want to go back. You brought us here to die. <laughs> what? Murmur, 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 right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And so that word itself, grumble, is so dangerous. And grumbles and complaints can divide a church in no time. Just like that. It's the fire that comes from our mouth, right? That, that just burns down unity. And, and so you know this, right? That, that grumbling leads to disputing, and disputing leads to division, and division leads to spiritual death. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That means that nothing in our lives are to have it. So there you go. Go work that out in your salvation with God. Man, this verse did a number on me this week. I'm humbled and convicted because I love to grumble. I love to dispute. It makes my flesh feel good. But it never helps me to walk in the Spirit. So would God give us the desire and the ability to stop complaining and to give us the desire and ability to stop disputing all the time? No more grumbling, no more disputing. It's possible to live that way in the life of God. It really is, but you have to want it. Another connection to what we see here in verses 12 through 14 is that grumbling shows that we don't trust God's sovereignty. 
Grumbling shows that we don't want to take responsibility. Grumbling and disputings are the sounds of an unthankful and discontent heart. It robs us of our joy. And not only that, it robs the joy of everyone else around you who has to listen to it. And so this kind of attitude is not fit for the children of God. Why not? Well, because we're called to be representatives of Christ. We have been called to put on the mind of Christ, to follow his example of unity and humility, because if you go to the Gospels, I don't think you're going to find any place where you see Jesus grumbling and disputing. And so these things are simply a prideful assault on the unity that the Holy Spirit wants to make in the church. So verse 14 through 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. We have been called as Christians to be blameless and innocent. And look, we're to live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's a way to describe the world, isn't it? Isn't the world just so crooked and twisted? Isn't it? Oh, the world is so crooked and twisted. (laughs) Isn't it so bad? Right? Man, our world apart from Jesus is crooked and twisted. Of course it is. It lacks the grace of God and the spirit of God. That's why the world needs salvation. But how will a twisted and crooked generation come to see the salvation that Jesus offers if we don't represent it well and we're always grumbling about it? See, I find that this scripture about the world being twisted and crooked does not point the responsibility to the twisted and crooked generation to live obediently. The emphasis is not on the world to obey. They can't. Do you understand that, Christians? Church, do you get it? The world can't obey God. They can't. They don't have the grace of God. They don't have the spirit of God dwelling in them. They have no will and no power. The emphasis here, church, is on us. We're called to obey, and we can. We have the grace of God and the spirit of God. The children of God are to be in the midst of the crooked and perverse world, shining as lights without blemish, blameless and innocent. You are called to be the light in the midst of a dark and messed up world. So bring the gospel of grace to it. See, Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So we need to realize something If we must do all things without grumbling and disputing, that seems to say to me, we should not grumble at a crooked generation. It seems to say to me, we should not dispute about a twisted generation. If we complain and dispute about the outside world inside the church, the church is going to become just as twisted and crooked and divided as the world we're complaining about. We are called to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not complain about it, everyone. What this is saying is that while we are in the world, a world that is crooked and twisted, I don't think I need to convince anyone here of that. 
We're to live as obedient Christians, shining as lights in the world so that more people can have what we have. Notice that it does not say, do all things without grumbling or disputing, except when the world's being crooked and twisted. Then you can grumble and complain and dispute over that. Nothing. I think you get the point. So Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Church, let's be wise. Let's be like bright stars and let's turn many to righteousness. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the world needs to hear, not our grumbling, not our disputing. Verse 16 says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not labor uh, run in vain or labor in vain. This is it, guys. This is where our obedience comes from, is in this book. If we can stay on the straight and narrow path of this book, then we can live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation shining brightly for the Lord. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so to Paul, nothing hurt more than to see Christians living disobedient lives. In fact, Paul says it would feel like his labor had been in vain. And then verse 17 through 18, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. For sake of time, I don't have enough time to go into this, but a drink offering was a secondary sacrifice that went upon a, a, a primary sacrifice in, in Jewish and even in pagan uh, sacrificial systems. Paul's saying is, you have to live out your life. You have to live out your own salvation. You are to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. But I can come alongside you and I can be the drink offering. I can be the smaller offering that can be poured out upon your offering. And that's the heart of a pastor, is to come alongside people in their sacrifice of faith. Now, we're going to zip through these last two parts, because what Paul does here at the end, and I know you're thinking, wow, we're only here. we got the rest of the verses. Well, we're going down to verse 30, but we're going to zip through it, because here's what we have. Timothy and Epaphroditus are held up as examples of men who lived obedient lives of faith. You guys ready? And then we're going to wrap this up. You with me? You like this Mother's Day message? All right, let's go. Verse 19 to 24 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul was going to send Timothy to Philippi, and, and Timothy was a co-worker in the gospel with Paul. This is a worthy study in your Bible to look at, the relationship between Paul and Timothy. 
It's a model of discipleship that we should model in the church. They had a relationship that was like a father and a son. This is what I talked about at the beginning of the church, being like a spiritual family. See, Paul said, I have no one like this guy, Timothy. He was like-minded with Paul. Paul could trust him because he had genuine concern for the church in the same way that Paul did. Timothy had a proven worth. He loved God. He served God. And he loved and he served Paul. Timothy was a spiritual son, a co-worker in the gospel, and he's held up as an obedient person of faith. Then in verse 25, we read, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had shown mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus was another co-worker in the gospel. Epaphroditus would visit Paul while he was in prison, and he was a messenger that would take these letters of Paul and distribute them to the churches. And Paul calls him my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Those are three great child. Uh, titles for any person of God. Epaphroditus wanted to go see the believers in Philippi because he loved them like Paul did. But on his way, somehow Epaphroditus got sick and so sick that he almost died. Paul says here, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. These are great words to hold up in comparison to what Paul said about dying being gain. You see, there's still sorrow in death. And when a person is prayed for and delivered from any kind of illness, Paul attributes that to the mercy of God. Anytime someone is sick, especially if someone is near death and they recover, we ought to always, like Paul does here, attribute that to the mercy of God. And since Epaphroditus did recover, he was then sent to Philippi because there was a loving relationship. And then in verse 29 and 30, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor this man. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So as we close, this is what we've learned that as obedient disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to serve others in a way that is selfless and sacrificial. We're to not grumble or dispute about anything, certainly not about the world that is perishing apart from Christ. We're to be men and women who shine as lights in this twisted and crooked world. We're to be men and women of blameless character because we walk in the grace of God. We're to be those who obey even when other believers are present and even when they're not. 
because our obedience is because we want to please the Lord. We want to be those who will serve Christ, even if it would mean dying for the sake of the gospel. So Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were people who were held up as examples of those who worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling, for God was working in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what about you? What about your own salvation? That's the question today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word that is living and true. Thank you that it pierces into our hearts, divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerns the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. And God, as your word has been spoken today, I know it does not return back to you without doing what you send it to accomplish. And when the word is preached, faith comes. And I pray that if anyone has come to faith by what they've heard today, that they would begin a life of salvation with you. And that for all of us who do know you as Lord and Savior, that we would work out our salvation day by day until we go to be with you, Lord. Thank you for your daily grace and mercy in our lives. Help us to live obedient lives because we know that the same power that Jesus obeyed with is the power that has been given to us. We pray it in your name. Amen.